I want you to turn to the text today with me. It's in the book of Numbers. The chapter is 20, and I want to read verses 1 through 13. The book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. Sure is easy to find it. I'd like for you to read with me or read along with me as I read verses 1 through 13. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried. And there was no water for the, for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished with, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water from, for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. If you've never been a preacher, I need just a little bit more, James, please. If you've never been a preacher, you never know how tempted a preacher can be to say just what he said. You rebels. <laughs> I... I uh, I've resisted the temptation, so don't. Uh, you rebels, shall we bring forth water from you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you've not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. This passage begins kind of inauspiciously with the death of Miriam and she was buried 
and it doesn't get through the month or the chapter until Aaron the high priest dies and they take off his priestly garments and they bury him. And I have a feeling that I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, great. I drug myself out of bed on Labor Day weekend to church, made a special effort to hear a sermon from the Old Testament about somebody who died. Well, that's just piece of the bad news. Before you get through very long, Moses dies also. And you might be saying, what in the world is, how in the world is that relevant to me? How does that speak to my need on this day? Well, the significance of this passage is found in the very first statement. It occurred in the beginning of the 40th year, the first month of the 40th year. The significance of that is that the wilderness wanderings are finally over. The exodus is past, and they're about now to move into the land of promise. The most important year in Hebrew history is this year. It is the year that Hebrew history has anticipated on its tiptoes. They're about now to go into the land of promise, and the wilderness wanderings are over. And a strange thing happens. The most important year in the Hebrew's life and Miriam, the song leader, the prophetess, dies, and Aaron, the high priest, dies, and Moses, their leader, dies and leaves them without a leader. It would be like a church being in some gigantic building program and all the staff leading, leaving, and the people are saying, where do we go from here? Good question. But the passage is not about men and women, as important as they are in God's plan. This passage is about God and about His Word. And what this passage is all about is this, that somehow we need to learn how to get a grip on, how to get a handle on letting God be God. For in the most strategic moment in Hebrew life, God removes these people from the scene because he wants to be first in their affection. He wants to be the object of their affection and he wants to be the goal of their striving. And the whole explanation of human history and the explanation of the human history of your life might, might just be that, that God wants us to let him be God. You know what the hardest thing for us to do is? The hardest thing for us to do is to just let God be who He is and do what He does. Somebody at some wag said that every time he sees a certain faith healer on television, he thinks he can hear God say, please, Jack, I'd rather do it myself. Now, I'm not sure that God does that. But I have a feeling that as God looks down upon all of my striving and all of my failing and all of the energy I expend in my flesh without much fruit, I think God might say with a sigh, please, son, let me be God in your life. 
And the question I have for you this morning is this. Have you ever learned to let God be God? We need, first of all, to let God be God in our need. The text says that the whole congregation came to Sinai. The whole congregation. The implication is that for these 40 years, they had been scattered across that desert floor and separated from one another. Fragmented were the people of God. But they all came together, the whole congregation, and they came together at Sinai. They had been here before. 37 years ago, they were at this very same spot. Uh, at least their mothers and their fathers were. Many of them died in the wilderness wanderings, but they had been here before. And Deuteronomy says that it is an 11 days journey from Sinai to Canaan, 11 days from, from where they were 37 years before to where they wanted to go. And they spent 37 years trying to get to where they could go, where they wanted to go, took 11 days. Somehow they crammed 11 days into, 47, into 40 years, 37 years. And they got right back to where they were. Does that sound like anybody you know? I mean, you spend your time and you get right back to where you were, getting nowhere. And so they came back to Sinai where they'd been before. And they were doing the same things they had done in the wilderness. They were crying, water, water, there is no water. Now, there's a conservative estimate that there were two million people there at that spot. And if you gave each one of them one sheep, there were two million livestock, and the livestock were bleeding and baying, and the people were crying, water, water, we have no water. That'd get old, get old pretty quick. I left uh, Santa Rosa, New Mexico one day with a four-year-old daughter in the back seat. Now, I told her, I said, now, on the way to Glorietta, this is the last watering spot. Be sure and get you a drink. Do whatever else is necessary because we're not going to stop till we get to Glorietta. And so I thought we got us a drink and everybody was set. And about 10 minutes out of Santa Rosa with 50 minutes left to drive, it was this water, I'm thirsty. You know, how much farther? And she got kind of laid down in the back seat and she was just kind of chanting, I want a drink. And I, 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 I thought it was kind of cute at first. But about 30 miles down the road, I'll tell you what, you, that got old quickly. Can you imagine what Moses must have thought? Two million people, two million livestock, and they all crying, water, we need something to drink. How much farther? They've been here before. And what they were saying was, doesn't God care that I have a need? Doesn't he know that I'm thirsty? Doesn't he care? Oh, we know that God is big enough to bring Pharaoh to his knees, but does God supply water for thirst? Doesn't he care that there are babies and children and parents and adults and livestock who have need for daily bread? Doesn't he care that we're starving? 
rock there, and water came, and they were, and they were nourished. They, they had water. And so, so God seems to be saying, now one more time, I'm going to show you that I'll meet your daily needs. Now watch carefully. I'm going to go through this very slowly so you can see it for yourselves a second time. And, and he provided for their need for water. Does God care that we have need? Yes, he does. And Paul said, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It was a statement out of discovery, not out of theory. He had discovered that there was never a need in his life that God did not supply, God did not meet. And that is the unimpeachable record of all of Scripture that God does know you have need and can meet that need. Do you believe the Bible? The Scripture says that he will withhold no good thing from those who seek him do you believe that? I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear. Do, do you believe that? That he will withhold no good thing from them that seek him. You believe that? Then why are we always complaining about the things we don't have? And why are we walking constantly in doubt because there are some things we don't have where well, you say, well, you know, so-and-so, my neighbor, he, he got, God gave it to him. Well, what's good for him may not be good for you. I know some folks that can eat spaghetti and meatballs and never feel an effect of that. But I also know some folks, won't call any names, if they ate spaghetti and meatballs, they'd be up all night. What's good for one is not good for another. If God is the God of need, and he will withhold no good thing from them who seek him. You can mark it down, take it to the bank. If you have a need, God's going to supply that need with the best thing for you. Now these people were grumbling at Moses. Wasn't Moses' fault? Well, God was teaching him a lesson also. Well, you see, Moses, God had given Moses this special kind of gift and, and, and this gift was that he had a tremendous compassion, a sensitivity to the little man, to the underdog. It was there from the very beginning. And he just misused that gift. As a matter of fact, one day he saw an Egyptian striving with a Jew and he stepped in uh, to take the place of the underdog and slew the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. The next day he saw two Jews striving together. The implication is that one was getting the better of the other and so he stepped in to take the place of the one who was getting whipped and, 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 and one of the Jews said, uh, well, what are you going to do? You going to do to me what you did to the Egyptian? He said, you know about that? He said, yeah, I know about it. So Moses thought it was time for him to split and he took out, out into Mid to, the, to, the, to the desert, out to Midian. And out there on the back side of the desert, there was a priest who had seven daughters. And every afternoon, she, those daughters would go to the well to get water. And every time they'd get there, just at the time the shepherds came to water their sheep, these shepherds pull a little male chauvinism on these women, and they'd make those girls wait until they watered their sheep. When Moses saw that, this, this gift that he had of sensitivity and compassion welled up within him again 
And he said in the margins, he said, boys, where's your manners? Ladies first. So the shepherds stepped back and the girls came and got water and when they got back to the house early, the father, their father, not accustomed to their getting back so early because they were always having to wait for the shepherds to get through, said, what, what happened today? Why are you back so early? They said, well, there was a man there that took our place, took our case there and let us get drink first. He said, where's your manners, girls? Invite him home for supper. And so they did. In fact, he stayed 40 years there. He married one of them. And for 40 years, he lived on the backside of the desert of Midia. You know why? Let me show you why. Because God was teaching him how to use his gift. Now, it took a long time. Moses was in an ag school for 40 years. That's going to college longer than... Dwayne Polk went to college. I mean, for 40 years, he, he was out there in the backside of the desert in this ag school, and his mother and father must have thought, how long is it going to take this boy to learn something? But it's gonna, how long is it gonna take for him to, to, to learn the lessons? But you see, God is in no hurry. And he wants you to work out what he works in. And so he just takes his time and he brings these needs to pass in your life and mine in order that he might teach us the lesson. What he was teaching Moses was that when you encounter a need, you don't have to take matters in your own hands. When you encounter a need, you don't have to take matters in your own hands. I'm, I'm available for that need. You ever discovered that? He wants to be God in our need. He wants to be God in our crisis, crises. Now verse 6 says that when these people began to murmur and complain, Moses and Aaron went into the tent, to the door of the tent meeting. They didn't even get all the way inside the church house. They fell on their faces before God. This is an urgent matter. They began to cry out to God. They took it to God. And the Bible says that the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And that word appeared in the Hebrew is a word that means heavy. The glory of God. God was heavy upon them. God was there. 104 times previously, God said, I'll be with you. And 14 times in the book of Numbers, God says, I'm with you, I'm with you. You have an emergency, you have a crisis. Here I am, son. God is there. And it's no mistake about him being there. He's there in heaviness. They can feel the weight of God upon them. They can't even stand there on their faces. My telephone rang Friday. Some person told me, said, hurry out to the hospital. They need you there. And she told me hurriedly on the telephone about this terrible, sad, tragic thing that happened. Twenty-month-old child wanders out away from his grandmother's care and drowns. On my way out to the hospital, you know, praying, Lord, help me to know what to what to say. How can you say what you need to say? And I'm going to tell you what, you've never, you've never earned your keep on this earth until you'd be where I've been in these last few hours. 
You think preaching is all getting up on Sunday morning like a drum major? Go into the room where a grandmother had a baby under her care and it, and it drowned. Stand with a young father and mother whose child, only child, they adored. And try to make some sense out of that. And while I was walking into that emergency room thinking about what in the world I could do, God was saying, let me be God in this crisis. Let me be God here. And as I tried to pray with that hysterical grandmother, I could sense God saying, let me be God in this crisis. For if he's not the God of the crisis moment, he's not God at all. And the cloud by day the pillar of fire by night, he said, I'm here. And he wrote us a Christmas card through Isaiah the prophet and signed his name, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm here in this situation. I'm the God of the crisis. You know what I believe to be the difference between the victorious Christian and the defeated one? The difference, I believe, is that the victorious Christian has, has, has discovered that there is an energy other than his, than his own that is operative in the world. Can I say that again? The victorious Christian has made the discovery that there is an energy that is operative in the world other than his own. Have you made that discovery? That there is a power on the scene. It's what the pilgrims used to call prevenient grace. Did you, did you, have you made the discovery that there is a power on the scene prior to you getting there? That that power is not of you but in you? That your responsibility in mind is not in creating the substance or providing the inspiration or performing the task but our responsibility is to make ourselves sufficiently available to the power of God for the glorious news of the gospel is that there is an energy and a power that wants to take over your life. And nowhere is that more welcomed than in the crisis moments when we come to the end of ourselves. And so he said to Moses, speak to the rock. Moses had a hard time learning the lesson because when he got up, he said, speak to the rock. Have you ever, now if I saw any of you out, you know, and Moses said, you want me to speak to the rock? The last poll I took, only 1% of, of, of my people approve of my leadership and you want me to go out there and talk to a rock? That's going to be kind of, weird looking isn't it I want you to notice something when God said for him are you listening to speak to the rock he wanted him to understand that the thing that links up our need to his power is his word did you get that you see when you speak a word you enter into that word you affirm that word you make that word a part of you that's what 
the whole logos is refers to is that, that the living word was the expression, the embodiment of the spoke of, 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 of God's written word. And so when God said, speak my word, he was saying that the way to link up my power to your need is to trust my word, enter into it. You see. Now watch this. The thing that keeps us out here you know, worrying about our need keeps us from linking up to God's power is verse 12, we just never really learn to trust Him and His Word. And so Moses spoke all right. But when he spoke, he didn't speak to the rock. He looked out over that two million congregation. He didn't have a PA system. He reared back and he, he let them have it. He said, you rebels, I'm up to here with you. Oh, Moses. He said, you rebels, this job is not what it's cracked up to be. Well, there had been 40 years of anger and frustration inside of him and it just, beginning, it just began to erupt. He was just so angry. And he said to them, instead of to the rock, this is what he said, watch this. He said, shall we bring water out of this rock? Now who's we? Moses and Aaron. You know, have, have you noticed that you can tell a lot about a man by what he says in a crisis? You, you get a guy under pressure and what comes out of his mouth just tells you a whole lot about that man. And when he said, shall we get water out of this rock, it sure does tell me a lot about 40 years of Moses' life and the frustration that he felt. In other words, Moses, for 40 years, was not learning the lesson that God would supply need, that God would meet crisis. He thought it was up to him. Listen, folks, in a crisis, it's not a matter of us. It's a matter of him. And, and, and when he said, we, are we going to have to get water out of this rock? It sure does indicate to me that all along Moses was thinking that all the responsibility and all the glory of the events of God and the lives of people were his responsibility. Moses, Moses, it's not your responsibility, so the glory should not be yours. And I know what I would have done if I had been God. I would have said, okay, hot dog, you want to do it your way, do it your way. You would have done the same. Okay, Moses, you got yourself out on that limb. Now I'm going to saw it off. I'll just show you before two million people and two million livestock that you can't do it on your own. I'm going to show you you can't do it. And I would have had it where when Moses struck the rock, wouldn't a thing come out of it. I'll show you, boy. But God is not like that. Now watch this carefully. Even though Moses was a rebel, was out of the will of God at the moment when he struck the rock. The Bible said it gushed with water. 
Now somebody put a pencil to that. It said, if there are two million people there, two million livestock, somebody said, if you let everybody, every human being get a half a pint of water to drink and every livestock drink one pint of water, that in order for those, for the people and the livestock to have drunk, it would mean that 1,666 gallons of water a second had to come out of that rock. That's pretty awesome. You know what that says? It says that, that God is a God of superabundant grace. Superabundant grace. Now, what is the guarantee that God will meet my need? Is it my faith? Not really. Is it my righteousness? Not at all. It's His capacity to give. And He is a God of a superabundant grace. And even in our sin, God provides more than we can than we need. Even in our sin. And water gushed out of that rock, and everybody drank. Sure it wasn't because Moses and Aaron deserved it. It sure wasn't because the people deserved it. It's because God is a God of grace who meets our need. Daniel said, our prayer is not because we are righteous. We pray because you give. One last thought, please. We need to let God be God when God says no. Now, God said to Moses and Aaron, He said, We're not, you're not going to get to go into the land of promise. Remember, that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian faith and the Old Testament gives us the pictures of the Christian faith. And Canaan was never meant to be a picture of heaven. It's never meant to be. That's, that's a song we sing. It's the picture of the fulfilled life, the victorious life, the abundant life. It has nothing to do with not getting into heaven. God said to Moses and Aaron, you're not going, you're not going to the land of promise. You will not see the fulfillment of the promise. And Moses begged God to let him. Three times the Bible says, he entreated God and, and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. Please let me see the promise fulfilled. Please let me see the promised land. And God said, no, not unlike not unlike Paul when he came and said, three times, Lord, remove the thorn. And God said, no. It's enough. The answer is no. Are you willing to let God be God when the answer is no? Now, I know that we're supposed to expect great things from God. And I know we're supposed to believe and claim in faith. But let me tell you something. There are times when the answer to our prayer is no. And we can ask God again and again and again. And finally God says, it's enough. Let me be God when the answer is no. Now there are some of you here this morning who are just like me. We're perfectly willing for God to be God when the answer is yes. We're perfectly willing for God to be God when we need our needs met and when the crisis comes 
Well, let me tell you something. It takes a great deal of submission to say to God, thy will be done. And Jesus said, Father, is there any other way? And God said, there is no other way. And Jesus said, thy will be done. You're the God of the no. The hardest thing in the world for us is just to let God be who he is. What a tragedy when we don't. There is a story that comes out of tradition or history or whatever that one day Ludwig von Beethoven heard about an organ, a beautiful musical instrument that was in a certain monastery or abbey several miles from where he lived. And Beethoven wanted to see it and hear it played. And so he started with his friends, his companions, his colleagues, and they left by one morning early and walked this great distance to this monastery. And they got there just at dusk and sought entrance. The abbot, the head of the monastery, didn't recognize Beethoven, and he did not announce who he was. He just said, I've heard you had a marvelous organ, a masterpiece. I'd like to see it, if I may. Oh, he said, I'm sorry. The, the, the monastery is closed. You'll have to come back. Oh, I can't come back, sir. We've walked a great distance. Could you not make an exception? Oh, he said, no exceptions. It's time for the evening prayers. It's too late. But because he was so insistent, finally, the abbot said, come on in. And they went up to the tower of that monastery where the organ was. And when Beethoven saw it, he was awestruck. He'd never seen anything like it. He said, sir, may I play it? Oh, no, no, not at all. No exceptions. No, we allowed no one to play but the choir master. Oh, he said, just let me put my hands on it. Just let me touch it. I'm sorry, sir. I've made an exception. No more exceptions. But at his insistence, Beethoven sat down. When he put his hands on that magnificent organ, the greatest sounds that had ever come from it leaped out and just pervaded that monastery. They had not heard that before. And he played for several moments. It was as if heaven came down. When he finished playing, he said, sir, I'd like to tell you, I'd like to express my appreciation. And if, you're ever, if you ever come to my city, ask where I am. My name is Ludwig von Beethoven. And he turned to the left. 
And the leader of the monastery stood there in silence for a moment and said, just think of it. The master, the master was here. And I almost didn't let him play. Just think of it. You have a need in your life and you almost forgot him. Just think of it. You are in, you're in the crucible of crisis and just in the God of the crisis moment is heavy here and you almost missed him. What a tragedy. For what God wants to be is God in your life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in every moment, in every situation, indeed in this moment, we will let you be sovereign. We will let you be God. Speak to our heart so we'll know what you desire for us. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now, if you'll look here just a moment, we have invitations. There are three. The first invitation is for you to come this morning receiving Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The need you have is for salvation, forgiveness of sin. He is sufficient for that need. An invitation this morning is for you to come and place your life in the church on promise of letter by statement or to come this morning to say, I just need to let God be sovereign, be Lord of my life, and He's not Lord in my life. We'll give you an opportunity to come in these moments of invitation. I invite you to come while we stand to sing.